Barack Obama cared less about foreign policy and less about kind of the politics, like how you actually twist arms or get relationships going in Washington than most presidents and other presidents I've interviewed, but cared more about domestic policy and kind of the intellectual part of the presidency. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, a look back on the Obama presidency. What were his strengths and weaknesses? His successes and failures? Susan Page of USA Today joins other journalists and policy experts in a discussion about Obama's legacy. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly podcast that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. As the historic presidency of Barack Obama comes to a close, today's speakers consider how the American public will view his leadership after he leaves office. Journalists Susan Page and Evan Thomas join author Michael Eric Dyson and president of the Council on Foreign Relations, Richard Haas. NPR special correspondent Renee Montaigne moderates the conversation. Did the president fail to meaningfully intervene in conflicts abroad? Will his shortcomings overshadow his efforts to repair the nation's economy and ensure millions of people under Obamacare? As the nation's first African-American president, how did he address issues of race? Critics on the left wish the president had gone further to address climate change, immigration reform, and racial inequality, while critics on the right find hardly anything they'll miss about the president. What will the history books say about Obama? Renee Montaigne opens the conversation with a question for Michael Eric Dyson. He wrote The Black Presidency, Barack Obama and the Politics of Race in America. You know, I'm going to start with Michael, and partly because both Michael and Susan, for me, have a lot to say about the legacy, the legacy of the politician, uh, Barack Obama. And so, Michael, for you, you've got your book, but also some of you may have seen the New York Times, a piece by you, and you really do talk about an extraordinary president who has not been able to deliver in certain ways on, on his promise. So let me just jump, just leave it to you and let you launch into that. When you're thinking legacy, at this moment in time, you're thinking the legacy of a black president. Yeah, I, I think that, um, I do believe that uh, Barack Obama is a pretty extraordinary guy compared to the guy who was there before him um, in many ways. Uh, in the, over the long haul, I, I think he'll stand up pretty well. He might end up being uh, not exactly the black Ronald Reagan in terms of identity, ideology, and inclination, but in terms of the burnish and the shine that attends his legacy, uh, the further we are out from it. Um, I think he faced some rather difficult uh, circumstances, the inheriting of war, um, the figuring out of the relationship of America to the global, <clears throat> if you will, both marketplace, but also uh, the global economy of war, as well as uh, the ostensible war on terror and what would be the appropriate response of America to that, if one could even um, uh, acknowledge it as such, and, there, and then from there what the terms would be. Um, but furthermore, I think it's pretty obvious uh, to some and um, increasingly obvious to others that the role of race played a big role, uh, played a big part in his, his presidency as well. In terms of both how he was viewed, how he was seen, um, how he was interpreted, 
Um, and some of the limits, I think, that were imposed upon him as well. Uh, in terms, say, for instance, the first president not to have an automatic rise in the debt ceiling, uh, Democrat or Republican. Um, and, and when I say, ra I don't mean racist, but I, I think racial. You don't have to be racist and intend to have racial consequence. The difference it makes to have the person who is the supposed most powerful person in the world uh, be a black person has forever changed the American presidency. And I think it will be less striking and even remarkable should Hillary Clinton ascend to that throne, so to speak, because of the fact that before her, a huge barrier of difference was broken as a result of uh, a black man occupying it. When I think of legacy, I think uh, very briefly that uh, the legacy that Obama will uh, eventually enjoy is indistinguishable uh, from the perception of him as a black man who was a president and as a president who faced uh, extraordinary barriers. I think that very few of us, perhaps, I would think, um, could deny uh, the revived, recrudescent uh, racial animus that was directed against him. You know, all kind of emails and, you know, political figures across the landscape, especially uh, right-wing figures that, that week after week, and I kept a tab of this, uh, just came out saying horrible stuff, police departments that were full of individual animus toward him as a figure, and then the notion of a black president. I think in that sense, um, part of the legacy will be the creation of a tremendous racial anxiety that was answered uh, or found its apotheosis in a figure like Donald Trump. Um, I'm not at all blaming Barack Obama for the rise of Donald Trump, uh, although some of the rough treatment he received, that is the Donald, uh, by Obama in those White House correspondence dinners probably egged him on. But the reality is that the vacuum created as a result of Obama's racial procrastination, his hesitancy to engage the issue of race. First of all, because most, many white brothers and sisters didn't want to speak about it. Some figured that when Obama got elected, been there, done black. As a result of that, we were finished with the issue in a certain way, and Obama was hesitant to do so. Part of his legacy will be uh, creating uh, an enormous opportunity to talk about race, uh, to engage some of the issues but not solve them, and in terms of other issues that we'll get into, uh, I certainly want to speak about whether or not uh, he, he distinguished himself from George Bush vis-a-vis -vis international issues in regard to the war on terror, whether he continued uh, the exact programs that, he had been that the previous president had been criticized for, whether or not he distinguished himself uh, enough by bringing the hopefulness that was resonant in his oratory uh, to bear upon the policies, but, but, but I've talked enough, but, but that's how I would kick it off. Susan Page, you've covered, or you've interviewed rather, and we talked about this, eight presidents, five of them as, as sitting presidents, including Barack Obama, several times. When you look at all previous presidents, and of course you can't really make a full um, judgment, but what, you know, how does he fit in with his legacy? Failed to do certain things, succeeded more than we expected? You know, I think one thing we shouldn't forget at this point of his presidency is what a remarkable political figure President Obama has been. I, I was trying to calculate these numbers backstage. You know, we've only had 44 presidents, counting Grover Cleveland twice. Only 38 of them were elected to office. Only 17 were elected twice. So that in itself is a remarkable legacy. And the idea that an African-American named Barack Hussein Obama could be elected president of the United States 
was an extraordinary achievement and one that we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't forget. And I, I certainly agree with you that that's got big conse that big consequences. You know, in covering presidents, they don't always get the legacy they intended to get. And I think that is certainly true for Barack Obama. The animating principle of his campaign in 2008 was getting out of Iraq. Um, that hasn't really proved to be the case, and his handling of that has given, and perhaps he's been too dedicated to the idea of getting out of Iraq, but that was key to him defeating Hillary Clinton for the nomination. He talked a lot in both campaigns about overhauling immigration. He has not achieved that. And most fundamentally of all, that speech, which I'll never forget in 2004 at the Democratic Convention, that remarkable uh, speech that really launched him as a national figure, he talked about changing the politics of America. And that has certainly not been the case, not entirely his fault, maybe not much his fault, but that was, I think, the thing that was most appealing to voters in the 2008 election was the idea that we could get beyond some of the animus and divide and polarization that has only gotten worse. But when you look at his legacy, I think it's, I think it's pretty substantial, although some of the substantive issues have yet to, been, to be resolved. And just very briefly, the groundbreaking nature of his election, the fact that we didn't have a Great Depression after he took over, handling an economic downturn he had, did not expect to have. Passing Obamacare, although we'll, you know, we'll wait and see how that works out as it goes more fully into effect. And his use of executive action on climate change and immigration. One last thing to watch for for his legacy, does he help elect a Democrat to succeed him? Does he help elect Hillary Clinton to office? Because one thing we know from the Reagan experience, having a president follow you after your two terms is a way to solidify and extend the, whatever you have done in your own eight years. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, a discussion held prior to the election at the Aspen Ideas Festival. The talk, The Obama Legacy, happened in June. Featured speakers include USA Today Washington Bureau Chief Susan Page, journalist and author of Being Nixon, Evan Thomas, President of the Council on Foreign Relations, Richard Haas, and Georgetown Professor Michael Eric Dyson. NPR special correspondent Renee Montaigne is moderating. Here's Montaigne. Evan Thomas, let me just ask, uh, just while we're somewhat on the economy, it seems like President Obama has not gotten credit for a couple of big things he's done. One of them is a 5% unemployment rate. I mean, any way to make that look like it's not as good as 5% is, seems to be, but also people seem to forget it. Is there some part of what could be his legacy that is just for various political reasons, not on the radar or underappreciated? Well, I think presidents get too much credit and too much blame for the economy generally. They always talk about mm -hmm. the president's economy. It's not. It's a global economy. Presidents increasingly have little effect on it. So I think that's a bit of a bump steer. The thing that I think that Obama deserves, I look at him in two, two sides of the same coin. On the, on the negative side, and I do fault him for this, his unwillingness or maybe his inability to get his hands dirty on just po capital politics, his unwillingness to go up to Capitol Hill and play golf with people he doesn't like. Uh, you know, that is part of the job, and he just wouldn't do it. He played golf, I think, with Boehner once. Most of the time he plays with his pals. But that is part of a president's job, is to go hang around with congressmen whom you do not like. 
And he just didn't want to do that. It's almost like he was above that. It was, and at times I felt he was almost condescending about, I'm, I'm doing you a favor to be president. Uh, there was a kind of haughtiness to him. And, I, and that I found to be objectionable and sad. Now, it begs a big question. Even if he had gone up there and played a lot of golf, would it have made any difference? Because that's such an intractable, difficult, impossible group. It would have just been an exercise in frustration and to hell with it. So I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. But he didn't try. He did not try. Uh, the flip side of this coin, however, is, and Richard's going to be smarter about this and may disagree with this, I think in his second term, Obama has shown a great capacity to stay out of stupid, stay out of it. You know, they say that foreign policy is not, don't do stupid stuff, there's no foreign policy. It is to me. Uh, I think uh, Obama was actually pretty smart about avoiding foreign entanglement. Now, I, I can feel Richard vibrating here next to me. Uh, so I think we're about to hear a different view of this. But to my layman, non-professional view, I think his ability to stay out of trouble was, was, was good. Well, okay, we're going to Richard now. And we spoke about this a little bit backstage. I was in, I just by a fluke happened to be in Afghanistan when uh, President Obama gave his speech to cadets at West Point. And I got the reaction from Afghans, which was this big excitement for like a moment, like, ha, ah, about uh, 30,000 more troops. Um, and then when he said, but, they're but they'll all come out in, I think it was 2011, that was the original deadline. It turned out to be quite a bit later. Everybody was deflated because it was simply, you know, it's that old line about, um, you know, the West has all the clocks and we, the Taliban, have all the time. From the point of view of Afghans, it appeared to be complete, almost meaningless. It was just buying them a little bit of time. So go from there and talk to us about foreign policy in the Obama era. And I would say one thing about the foreign policy legacy, as opposed to the domestic policy legacy, domestic policy, the president has less latitude under our political system, given the Constitution. It's more shared with Congress and the rest. And so when one looks at his economic legacy or health care or whatever, uh, I think there's, it's, it's almost harder to discern. In the foreign policy arena, presidents have more latitude, have more discretion. So there it's slightly less difficult with the obvious caveat uh, that it's too soon to tell. We'll see how certain things play out. But that said, the bottom line of his foreign policy legacy, I think, will be uh, quite negative. I think that historians uh, will begin with the honest take that the world is in worse shape today than when he inherited it, which is not to say he didn't inherit a, t a challenging inbox, by the way, all presidents do. Uh, he obviously, though, did uh, inherit the particularly challenging dimension of what his predecessor did in Iraq. But I do think the beginning of Barack Obama's problems in foreign policy was an overreaction to that. And if George Bush, George W. Bush, will go down in history as a president who erred by trying to do too much, by undertaking what I termed a, an ill-advised war of choice to try to transform Iraq, and he set in motion all sorts of dynamics in the Middle East, I believe Barack Obama will for the most part be seen as a president who tried to do way too little, uh, particularly in the Middle East. And what we're seeing is that acts of omission are every bit as consequential as acts of commission. And I believe the history will be most brutal on him for Syria, for essentially looking at the problem, every time looking at the options, not liking them, letting it sit for six months, coming back to it, and each time the situation grew worse. 
I think history will be uh, particularly uh, tough on him for saying that Assad must go and then doing nothing to bring it about. And there was a consistent gap between his rhetoric and his policies in the Middle East. I think history will be above all tough on him on the so-called red line in Syria to say that chemical weapons, if they were to be used, would be met with uh, all sorts of consequences when they were not. Nothing did more to undermine his authority and the reputation of the United States than his inaction in Syria and the fact that chemical weapons were openly disposed of in no way erases that uh, reality. It had all sorts of consequences for the strengthening of the government, the weakening of the opposition, and the rise of ISIS and groups like uh, al-Nusra. Uh, Afghanistan, uh, Renee already mentioned, uh, he was divided between what to do and what not to do. His, his, his whole mindset was one of retrenchment. He was getting pressured, though, to do more. What he did was split the difference. I'm going to go up for a little bit, but then I'm going to come out. And that kind of splitting the difference is the worst of all worlds. It didn't work. He, one area where he did too much was Libya. Uh, went in, I believe, under uh, arguments that just didn't bear scrutiny. People wanted to be uh, on the right side of history. And as Bob Gates, then the Secretary of Defense, questionally said, what the hell does that mean? We got into Libya, we did too much, and then afterwards we didn't follow it up. So he got it wrong going in, and he got it wrong, if you will, staying out uh, there. Uh, we could go around the region more, but I think history will essentially note a consistent uh, problem of a gap between what it was we sought to do and what it was we were prepared to do. And the fact is the Middle East is by far the least stable, most unsuccessful part of the world with the worst prospects. I'm not saying it's all his fault. Locals deserve the lion's share of the responsibility. As I said, he inherited a difficult situation. But he got dealt a bad hand, and he made it uh, much worse by the way he uh, played it. I'd say two other things. In Europe, the situation is also considerably worse. There, I think it's more for local reasons. Uh, Asia is the most interesting part of his legacy. The big foreign policy idea of Barack Obama the biggest single idea was not simply retrenchment from the Middle East, but was to dial up in Asia. The word was sometimes called pivot, sometimes a rebalance, but essentially the correct assessment that the 21st century was much more likely to be played out in Asia. That's where the people are, that's where the wealth is, that's where the rising countries are, that's where the major powers of this era are, and that the United States was going to shift, dial, if you will, greater attention and focus on Asia, less on the Middle East and Europe. The problem was, again, the gap between rhetoric and policy. It wasn't followed up diplomatically, particularly in the second term. The Asia policy got orphaned to some extent. The military buildup came belatedly. Above all, the single most important part of the pivot, which is the economic, is the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the trade agreement between the United States and 11 other countries representing some 40% of the world economy, and that is parked. We can't get it past the American political system. And that's my last point, where I think Barack Obama has not succeeded in Brexit. I'm not blaming it on him, but it's part of a larger problem. He has not spent an awful lot of calories trying to persuade the American people of the inevitable, not just the, the reality of globalization, but how America needs to interact with, with global challenges in a way that there would be global support. And what we've seen is the erosion of American support for free trade, erosion of American support for immigration, and so forth. So on his watch, uh, we're seeing a greater turning away from the world. And by the way, this is, this is not a partisan thing. We're seeing in the Republican Party, obviously, with Donald Trump, saw it just as much with Bernie Sanders. What we're seeing across the American body politic 
is a distancing from the world, and that would be tragic if that were to become the foreign policy legacy of Barack Obama. And this could go to any one of you. Um, I've always had the impression that President Obama did not really have a taste. He certainly didn't have a taste for war. Um, foreign wars, he wanted out. He promised to get out. He got out. Um, but that he also really, really wanted to focus on domestic policy. And to the degree that foreign policy fed into that, like the trade agreements and whatnot, that's where, that was his sweet spot. And I'm wondering if this could go to any of you, um, what, what you think about that, that this was just something if he could have not, despite Cairo's speech, despite the Nobel Peace Prize, that he really could have, if he could have handed it off, he would have. Well, I'm not sure he could have handed it, handed it off, but it's certainly true if you look at his history, was domestic, right? He was involved in community organizing, worked, he was in the state legislature, he spent just a brief time in, in the U.S. Senate. So his, his, his focus as a, an adult was not on foreign policy. And in fact, I think it's probably fair to say in the post, let me ask Richard this, in the post-war era, he had the least, the lightest background in foreign policy of any president well, before area, his presidency. The one area he did have background, he was, was on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Right. That's actually where I first met him, was he, he was on that committee. So he had, um, so I, mean, I would not say George W. George Bush, w. Bush had extensive, I mean, compared <laughs> to George Herbert Walker Bush, right. but Ronald Reagan hadn't had extensive well, experience Ronald in Ronald Reagan policy. had two t terms as, as governor, as governor, but, as governor but, that had some foreign policy element. And I guess we give George W. Bush, maybe this is not correct, but some since it, maybe he knew something just from being around his dad, but uh, perhaps that didn't work out. Well, you know, what it might have meant that he cared. He cared but more. I mean, I, th that's, you I, think know, I think it's definitely true that that uh, that uh, uh, Barack Obama cared less about foreign policy and less about kind of the politics that, that that Evan was talking about, like how you actually twist arms or get relationships going in Washington, than most presidents and other presidents I've interviewed. But cared more about domestic policy and kind of the intellectual part of the presidency. He, did, he didn't yeah. make that initial foray. He won the Nobel Peace Prize, after all, in the, uh, and maybe he's... A little early. A little early, but, but he did make that, and he made those initial speeches. He went to, America's gonna project a different face to the world. Uh, Richard, did he just drop the ball after that? I mean, that, that he, 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 he did stake an initial position that you should look at us differently. Well, the most extraordinary thing in terms of foreign policy initially was his getting elected. I'm, I should have had a nickel for every foreign leader or individual who said to me, you Americans are amazing. The fact that Barack Obama could get elected in the United States, something like that could never happen in our country. And it was one of those reminders in the positive sense of the word of American exceptionalism. So I think he started out with uh, tremendous, you know, the account was high. He had banked uh, a lot. There was a lot of excitement. Uh, I think though he hurt himself in several ways. One is I actually would have advised him to say no to the Nobel Peace Prize. I think it would have been a much smarter thing to say, let me earn it. Uh, let me earn it. And if I earn it, I'd love to come back and get it. Don't give it to me. You're not doing me any uh, favors. I thought the Cairo speech. Okay, I, th <laughs> I thought the Cairo speech was uh, a mistake. It also was another thing where he didn't go to Israel on that trip. And instead, the initial reaction, if you remember, policy of the administration was to start a, 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 something of a confrontation with Israel over settlements without first establishing a relationship. So I think he had troubles from the outset, and again, so much of it was based on the idea that the biggest single fix to American foreign policy would be accomplished by doing less, getting out of Iraq, getting out of Afghanistan, and I think that was since he overlearned the lesson of the mistakes of his predecessor, and it's, it's 
10 more seconds. We were talking about it before we came on here. Everyone always says you ought to apply the lessons of history. The problem is there's no place to go for the right lessons of history. And we're, I think Barack Obama's real problem was he entered office with a mindset that was inconsistent with the reality he inherited. Yeah, well, as far as the Nobel Prize turning it down, he was representing for the brothers there. It's not many of us <laughs> on that list. And uh, <clears throat> he had to take one for the people. Uh, <laughs> when they offer you one and you turn it down, that's going to be interesting. Uh, ain't nobody turning down no Nobel Prize. Uh, <laughs> but I, I get your point in terms of uh, the kind of deference. But I want to ask, just take a poll up on this stage even, and out here, how many of you in the last year, two, week, month, maybe decade, have spoken before a black church? Okay. How many routinely? Okay, my man. Did you preach? You preach? Oh, boy, I got to hear that sermon. Um, routinely, not one time, time and time again, right? Look around this room. Think about what Barack Obama as a black man had to inherit. The conditions conspire for you or against you. The logic that you inherit what you think is important. If Obama goes into office, right, I'm gonna speak to the left wing and then the foreign policy stuff. The, the left wing is mad, oh my God, you bailed out the banks. First black president allows the banks to fail. Forget a second term, he might not have got a second week, all right, not, not happening. Um, in terms of the economy, we know George Bush began what he then inherited, TARP money, distribution of resources to try to get this economy going. It is pretty remarkable, 5%, although at its height, Black unemployment was something like 16%, Latino employment, maybe 12, 13%. Uh, and Obama's policies never were targeted toward those most vulnerable populations that happened to be Latino or, or black. Um, bailed out the automobile industry. Mitt Romney was like, let them eat breaks. Um, okay, sorry, sir. Uh, and, and said, don't do it. And Obama bailed them out. Uh, and then, then healthcare. I think when we look back, we're gonna see how remarkable it was Playing, playing golf, of course, with people who don't like you, right. That's exactly right. And I think that you're not the first person to indicate, and I've known Obama since, what, 92. We were at the same church in Chicago and hung out, and I knew I was very friendly with him. Um, it is true that that is the knock on him. He's not, you know, hell fellow well met. He doesn't glad hand. He doesn't like the sausage making. He's not Bill Clinton, Right. Because it, in that case, as has been said, Bill Clinton is a dog and, and Barack Obama's a cat. I don't mean dog in any other way than <laughs> as a canine. Uh, and the, the 99 people in the room, the dog goes to the one person that doesn't like him. 99 people love you, the one person doesn't, the dog wants to know, why don't you like him? The cat is like, you could really kiss my ass. If you like me, it's great. And if you don't like me, it's fine. And there is that kind of finicky Obama approach. There's no question about it. It's ironic. You see it as a, a mark of, uh, of uh, derogation and perhaps a, 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 a dark mark, a black mark on his record. What, what progress in America for it to be considered a black man being snobby toward the masses of white people? <laughs> man, that's racial progress. Uh, and so, <clears throat> but, but, but you can't win being a brother, right? And this is what I'm trying to, to say. Imagine playing golf with a guy who thinks, you know, people who think you're a terrorist. People who think you're a Muslim, people who think that you are anti-American, people who think that you are fundamentally opposed, even the, the most you know, elegant uh, opposition uh, that could be conjured, and I wouldn't put John Boehner in that, um, 
the, the people who really fundamentally disbelieve in your humanity. And at a certain level, you've got to shield yourself from the onslaught. I've never been president, but I imagine it's a pretty tough job. And one of the things you have to do is to take care of your own mental health. We never talk about that in the process of trying to govern a nation that has, for the first time, half of that nation disbelieves in your essential humanity, half the nation practices a politics of disregard or benign neglect in a certain way. So I, would, I, I just would ask us to think about what it might mean. The reason I asked the question about the black church thing, imagine if day after day, routinely, you had to go to an HBCU. You had to go to an African-American or a Latino question. You had to deal with a barrio. Imagine in terms of the inherited vocabulary, in terms of the grammar of consent about American ideals. Imagine the, the presumption of a certain kind of um, uh, simpatico, all of which are absent. And then imagine having to step into that gulf and then govern a nation um, in a way and then have a global politics that deals with the ideals of America. Of course, Obama's going to be hyper exceptional. Of course, Obama's going to be reticent to do anything to get America in the path of greater war uh, from his own mind. So I take the point about the red line, Syria, Libya, what happened, especially vis-a-vis -vis the Secretary of State. But imagine, if you will, what that means from a person who's been taught. Part of his biracial inheritance is a kind of, on the one hand, this, on the other hand, that. Of always moderating and mediating and trying to find a middle pathway in order to, to work. And I think part of that, if the foreign policy has been leading from behind, the domestic policy on certain issues that have been strategic inadvertence of Obama in regard to race and in regard to ethnicity uh, may also prevail uh, in ways that are, that are counterproductive. But I just want us to imagine the difficulty of what that might mean to be the first black president and to have to govern accordingly uh, with peoples whose suspicion and skepticism are deep and thick in one's own country and then figuring out the global landscape and the geopolitics of that internationally. I just wanted to jump in. Can I jump in and ask a question? Yeah. Can I ask you a question, though? Sure. I mean, Barack Obama, I know him a little. I don't know him as well as you. But he strikes me as one of the more disciplined people I've ever met. Extremely. OK, so one of the, one of the things that it takes to be a successful president, you can't just be the job. You've got to do the job. Absolutely. And I, and I agree with exactly your characterization. There's some politicians who walk into a room and interact with people and come out with more energy, Bill Clinton. And there's some who walk into a room and come out depleted. And Barack Obama is very much of the latter category. That said, for someone who's disciplined, who wants to succeed at the job, why is it that Barack Obama didn't use his rhetorical powers more to, in a sense, turn the Oval Office into a classroom to bring the American people in? Okay, he didn't have to play golf every week with John Boehner, but maybe a few times. I, mean, I play golf with people I don't like all the time. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, so... We why, played last week, is that... No, okay, all right. <laughs> so why, uh, why is it that yeah. he didn't... Here's someone who has acute self-awareness. When he works in an audience, he works it with the timing and the interaction of a professional. Why wasn't he able, in some ways, to adjust his own behavior to make himself what could have been a more successful president? That's a great point. I mean, it's, it's a great question. Partly, as you know... Now, I've been a, a preacher for 35 years, uh, among other things. And, you know, people say, well, we are looking for a great sermon today. I always tell people, well, be a great audience, <laughs> and you're going to get a great damn sermon. <laughs> but if you sit on your hands and look at me like, I don't know what I'm talking about, it's going to be tough. So 
The call and response is critical. The, presump the, the great speech making he gave, notice when he gave those great speeches, people, you know, you're, you're before your mama's audience, so to speak. You had the convention in uh, 2004, not a white America, but a black America, but this is, you know, oh yes. And then out of nowhere he bolts. You're, but, but, but the point you make, so, so I'm saying, A, it's predicated upon a kind of reciprocity and a call and response where not necessarily people who believe in what you're doing, but people who are eager to hear it and therefore return in kind the kind of energy you might give. But number two, to your point, um, I think that, look, if it's been, as it's been said, that the greatest effect and impact of the presidency is the rhetorical presidency, uh, to your point and that the bully pulpit is an extension, a la Roosevelt, but since then, uh, those presidents, LBJ, Ronald Reagan, who have commandeered that pulpit to say something to America, I think that Barack Obama felt that he had to pick and choose his spots. And I think that once the sausage-making stuff, once the daily administration, once the stuff that you hate doing, you know, has to be done, because your point about it's not, you, you not only kind of be the job, you gotta do the job, that kind of, um, that kind of distinction, I think once that's set in with the huge obligation of that office to try as greatly as possible to master the mechanics of public policy and the application of that policy to a political framework that was resistant to him existentially, but he's trying to embrace ideologically, I think that was a, I think that was a heavy burden for him. So in that sense, I would have loved for the same kind of speech-making, speechifying, rhetorical magic that was deployed to be used more often. But I do believe, you, you've got your finger on uh, one thing here, is that what sets in is the remarkable uh, recognition that so many people are invested in your failure. That's all presidents. Let's not pretend that that's uh, unique to Barack Obama. But when you put the overlay of what he's dealing with historically, I think it sat on his vocal cords to a certain degree. You know, I just wonder about his, you know, President Obama's pretty popular right now, um, comparatively. Um, wasn't, a, wasn't the case in just very recent times, but he was very popular when he took office, and he's personally popular, and the First Lady's popular. I wonder if um, some of the issue has to do with the times, and you mentioned Bre Brexit, this notion that, um, that the elite, um, and he's the elite at this point, doesn't know how to speak to regular folks, really, you know, generally speaking. And... One thing about President Obama is his oratory is not soaring. He comes across like a professor who's lecturing people that he's talking to. Even his voice, I know from radio, I can tell you, it's much better when you're looking at him than when you're just hearing him. Because his voice has a, a sort of, well, like I say, lecturing tone and whatnot, but his face doesn't, doesn't say that. I mean, he actually, I don't think he is, a, a, I heard the word preacher, I don't think he is a preacher by nature. I think he is a professor by nature. And has that worked against him? And I only bring up Brexit because a lot of the suspicion of the elites and the experts had to do with the feeling that they were so out of touch and practically on another planet. Actually, I've thought a lot about why his popularity has gone up so much recently. The only thing I can think of is that it's playing off the campaign. And in some ways, you're having early on nostalgia for Barack Obama, the style of his presidency, the way he handles himself personally, the dignity, and the way he manages the office. 
And I think in a funny sort of way, whatever pe a lot of people think about you know, the disagreement over policies, the respect for the person, and again, the style of the, style matters in the, in, in the ultimate sense. I think the style of his presidency is one that people find admirable. And I think that's more than anything else. Not that his policies have changed in the last two months, but I think people he, he are- He seems dignified. Right. And in the age of Trump, he seems dignified. Is dignified. I wouldn't say seem. I would say is. <laughs> but, but you know, <laughs> there's a uh, being. First of all, being a professor, saying that you sound like a professor is never an insult to me. <laughs> but having said that, yeah, there is a kind of pedantic, mm -hmm. obtuse pedantry, as Walter Kaufman spoke about Nietzsche. Yeah, there, there. You know, in terms in terms of the approach. Yeah. So you could have that kind of stuff that's problematic, and it's the law school professor. I remember telling him to your point. When he landed, uh, I made a big endorsement the first time around at the Essence Festival with like 25,000 black people in the stadium. And uh, he had just been in a debate with Hillary Clinton. And so he's two of his advisors, and I'm riding in the seat next to him, he's got a little sniffle. And I say, you know, Hillary Clinton is really killing you. And the people, <clears throat> I said, oh, I, I thought we were being honest. I'm sorry. I thought we were going to tell the truth. And then he says, no, go ahead, go ahead. I said, you, dude, you're, you're doing like, you know, you're giving great speeches on Rauschenbusch and the nature of theology and its application. I said, that's great, I'm interested in that, but you're killing the audience. I said, so if you could do like Hillary, number one, number two, and number three. I said, now that's where the preaching would come in. I said, you might you know, find Jesse Jackson problematic, but you, can, you cannot forget what he's saying. Up with hope and down with dope. I'm still remembering that 50 years later, all right? Uh, our time has come. I said, get you some Jesse Jackson phrases and hook it up. And he said, you can help me. I said, yeah, I'm just saying, you got to do this. So he's not, uh, uh, you know, to the manner born in terms of his rhetorical skill, even though he's one of the great orators. But the tradition from which he emerges, black, you know, there's a black peach preacher with 12 members of his church on a corner in Harlem who can out preach most American orders. It's just, you know, Paul Tillich said one of the great uh, arrogances of his own Germanic theology was to presume it was the best in the world. Well, I'll, I'll, with, I'll retain that for black preaching. I think the density of black preaching in terms of its rhetorical suave and its uh, swagger is pretty intense. And Obama uses that at certain points. The, the, the speech in uh, after Charleston, what he did in Boston. So yeah, but he's, he's torn between that kind of style and the kind of professorial uh, engagement that certainly looks to many people condescending. But again, look at this. It, it's, um, it's, it's tough because as a, as a black man, I know growing up when I got, you know, you'll get a PhD at these Ivy League schools like I did at Princeton, they tell you, well, we don't want a black person who can't, you know, dot his I's and cross his T's and speak eloquently and know a bunch of stuff. And then when you start doing that, you're getting called an elite. And thanks for the defense. You know, you say, well, damn, I'm from the hood. Now I'm an elite. There's no middle ground. What happened? And so I think that Obama is facing, again, a difficult thing because he is an extremely bright guy. He was a law professor. That kind of style, of course, um, is, is germane to the kind of, you know, Socratic dialogue. But I think at the end of the day, what, the reason he's now, I think, more popular is that he's reclaimed the very thing that he's been disciplined, to use your word, against. That is to say, look, in basketball, they say, deal with, I only play up to what the defense gives me. Obama is playing to what the defense gives him. And right now, Donald Trump is handing most American politicians who are not of that ilk a beautiful gift. 
All you have to do is breathe and not be a jerk, and you are seen as a superior human being. <laughs> and then beyond that, uh, the ability to, to look at the amplification of the worst bigotries and the horrid uh, you know, biases that prevail, I think this is Obama's sweet spot because it reminds America of the very thing that he was contrasted to. And as a result of that, I think that with that in, and then with extending through Hillary, uh, I, I think that that potential has awakened something in him, but also made the American public more eager for the very brand of politics that he might bring. It's Aspen Ideas to go. Today's episode features a discussion from the Aspen Ideas Festival held in Aspen, Colorado in June of 2016. Author Michael Eric Dyson and journalists Susan Page and Evan Thomas are featured, along with Richard Haas, President of the Council on Foreign Relations. NPR Special Correspondent Renee Montaigne is moderating. If you like today's show, check out Is Violence a Function of Our Culture? Author and journalist Ta-Nehisi Coates talks with New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu about why African-American communities deal with more violence, mass incarceration, and police confrontations. What is the cause of this crisis? And what role does racism play? Find the episode by searching Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes. Now back to today's show. An audience member asks Richard Haas about Obama's decision not to establish a no-fly zone in Syria. He wonders how it contributed to the mass exodus of refugees to Europe. The, the debate about the no-fly zone came not at the beginning, but sometime into the Syrian debacle. Uh, yes, a no-fly zone could have been created, but it's a terrible phrase because it suggests what you do is, to, is simply put air power in. And a no-fly zone requires all sorts of ground forces. Because if you're going to protect people, you can't just have an air cover of them. You have to protect them from soldiers, from tanks, from howitzers, and everything else. So my point simply being, in order to have established a zone in which or under which Syrian civilians could have been safe, you would have needed a large ground component. And if we were not going to provide that, and there was lots of resistance to it, then we needed local forces, be they Turkish, or Arab to do it, and those do, easier said than are done. The reason there were massive refugee flows were, yes, because of the fundamental instability in Syria, but also the Turkish government, until recently, was doing very little to control its border in, in, in either direction. So ISIS was using Turkey as a major recruiting path, and refugees were going out through Turkey until the recent deal between the EU and uh, Turkey. But a no-fly zone is not a panacea. It's one of these phrases that's bandied about. I think probably the, the moment for it, if it ever existed, has passed, because now you've got Russian aircraft. And if you're going to establish a no-fly zone, you've got to be prepared to contemplate the consequences of that. So the options now are probably, I know it's not a panel in Syria, but 30 seconds. It's things like giving Syrian forces much more capable arms, among other things, advanced air defense systems, so they could protect areas, uh, more special forces, uh, possibly some strikes on Syrian aircraft on the ground and so forth using cruise missiles. So there's things we can do, but I think the, the debate about the no-fly zone has probably come and gone. What if the guy in front of you, there's a big anthill, a, a big anthill, 
And the guy in front of you just kicks it over. And then the guy behind you is then left to solve all these problems. And the American people are tired of their sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, shedding their blood because of the guy in front of you kicked over the anthill. Okay, as I said, Barack Obama inherited a tough hand, and I, I think history you know, will be quite critical, shall we say, of his predecessor for the Iraq War. No, no argument uh, about it. But again, uh, that was the situation he inherited. No one forced him to run for president. He knew he was going to inherit that situation. And the question then is, uh, did he deal with it as best he might have? Granted, and you're exactly right, the intervention fatigue that characterized the country, given both Afghanistan and Iraq, because more than two million Americans at one time served in uniform in those two conflicts. So there was, there was uh, intervention fatigue for, for all sorts of uh, good reasons. My, my criticism of President Obama was then the things he did and didn't do. Then I, I would have said, why do Libya, why pull certain troops out where small numbers of troops could have keep in situation stable and arguably in both Afghanistan uh, and Iraq? Why set out rhetorical goals that raised expectations and raised pressures on the United States to follow up with troops if your entire mindset was, was not to do that? So what I, I simply found were tremendous inconsistencies in his foreign policy. And at the end of the day, no one has, the, the, it's almost a red herring. No one is talking about wars on the scale of Afghanistan or Iraq. No one is talking about large footprint wars. We're not talking about transforming Middle East societies. But he has a lot to answer to, and he can do it in his memoirs and other ways, with statements made and decisions taken about everything from Egypt to Syria to Iraq to Afghanistan. We could, we could go through the, the, the region and Libya uh, without raising the question of the sort of large military involvement that the American people, I think, understandably rejected. And but, if I could just say, I met Richard Haas uh, when I was working for Newsday and covering the George H.W. Bush White House. And, I, and so George H.W. Bush, a president who had strengths and weaknesses, like all of them, uh, I remember with the, with the invasion of Kuwait when he came back from Camp David that Sunday. I was there on the South Lawn when he got off the helicopter and said, this will not stand, which made us all uh, stand up a little straighter. And unlike the red line uh, that President Obama said, uh, set and then, then allowed to be crossed, um, I think we all had the impression that for whatever reasons, George H.W. Bush meant that, that this was not going to stand. And then he devoted every day of his presidency to making that case. And he didn't do some other things he wanted to do as president because he was determined to deal with this particular foreign policy problem that he saw as so crucial. And he did, he was not a great orator, but he did an education campaign for the American people to bring them along with the idea that the United States had to intervene in this country that many Americans probably didn't, couldn't pick out on a map. And in furtherance of that, Richard, poor Richard Haas had to meet with reporters like every day uh, on the White House beat uh, in small groups in your little office, your tiny office in the old executive office building. It wasn't that small. Well, it was pretty small, <laughs> kind, of, kind of shabby. But, uh, um, but Your tax dollars <laughs> not at yeah. work. Um, but, but with, you know, so there I'm a reporter with Newsday, um, which is, it was a wonderful newspaper, but not, you know, um, not, uh, you know it was not like I was working for CBS. And he met... 
I must have met with him or Brent Scowcroft or Jim Baker or somebody else with a small group every week because they were trying to make the case that this was the right thing to do and they were doing it in every single way they could and they said whatever George H.W. Bush didn't succeed on this, he succeeded because he decided to succeed and he did the things that he needed to do to make that stand. But I, I think, you know, in light of that, I think that contrary to, to what you might argue, I think he's going to be seen with the anthill as the guy who saved us from John Wayne political swagger uh, and made the world far more susceptible to the politics of um, uh, terror that we see going on now. So the, the irony is he has George Bush's legacy. He repudiates the kind of commercial and goes for the product. Number two, look at the, the, the game has changed, so to speak, in terms of you know, the, 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 the large theaters, um, the massive deployment of troops or not to deploy troops, the red lines drawn, that is kind of analog stuff. We're dealing with digital. And in the digital warfare, so to speak, if you follow my analogy, then Obama's going to be seen as a precursor. Now, some will say great and some will say horrible of a kind of individualized warfare via drone strikes and also killing people on a terror list, right? Um, and so, and, and some may find that extremely reprehensible, find it problematic uh, in the extreme and the like, but I think that the shift in paradigm there is something that he'll be given credit for and seem to have faced a nearly impossible situation whose outcome we do not know yet as we saw in Istanbul uh, yesterday. So following up on the comments that have been made about the bully pulpit and what perhaps the president could have done better to have sold or educated people on a particular issue like globalization, I'm struck by the fact that on a number of critical issues, there actually is a broad consensus among the American people infrastructure investment, tax reform, immigration reform, gun reform, uh, climate change, and yet we have not been able to see political progress made. So I'm curious as to what the panel thinks, looking ahead, as to whether there are structural impediments that if we don't deal with, whether those are redistricting reform or changing the filibuster or money in politics, we're not going to be able to move forward regardless of what the skills oratorically are of the next president. There is one, one, one big deal that Obama did not even try for that is sitting out there and has to happen. And that is massive spending on infrastructure, an electric grid, bridges, all that stuff that we're not doing, in exchange for entitlement reform. Now those things are really hard to do, but there is a deal, most people agree it exists. Obama didn't even make a head fake at that. And, and I think his, 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 his he may, well, he mentioned it, but he barely did anything. And I think the feeling is that the structural obstacles in Congress are so great that you just couldn't get it done. Too many filibusters couldn't get 60, just couldn't get it done. I think what has to happen is that a president has to run on it. It has to be, you give, vote for me, and you have a mandate to do these things, these very hard things to do. We, we've got to spend a ton of money on our infrastructure. And sooner or later, we got to deal with entitlements. We just can't kick it down the road forever because all of our kids are going to be in a terrible place if, if we don't. Obama didn't try for that. Somebody's going to have to do it. I don't think you can do entitlement reforms on their own. I don't actually think you can do infrastructure on its own. But I think if you try to do them together, there's a deal that can be made. I don't know. If we read Raper's book, and when, when people meet the day you're getting inaugurated, and say that their greatest goal is to block anything you do, 
and to make you an unsuccessful president? What the hell? I mean, what, what he won't do? I mean, are you really, are we imagining what that means for the American public? It's not about structural impediments, which is, which is very important, in, that prevent the flourishing of the American consensus around certain ideals. A lot of stuff that Obama knew was consensus of American folk was being blocked in Congress and by, by perverse levels of obstruction. I just don't think we're being honest up here in terms of the white versus black about ultimately the hatred for Obama as the very epitome, not just racially speaking, but ideologically speaking and politically speaking of something that was so reprehensible. And the irony is, if you don't like this black guy, ain't one that's been made that you gonna really dig. This guy is really as willing and hungry and eager to compromise, to sit down at the table, and let's talk about our differences. I just happen to think, I just, I just very much disagree with that. I think that the, 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 the eyes and ears of his opposition were determined to think, see, and write anything that would oppose anything that was reasonable. And we can go down in terms of executive orders, forget whether the Supreme Court blocks you on immigration, he can't even generate a, 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 a febrile consensus about that. Gun control, you gotta have John Lewis sitting in Congress to even to, to draw attention to what the inaction is about and the consequences to the American public. So I just happen to believe that at the end of the day, if you hate the guy that bad and you wanna see him fail, there's nothing you can do except become Jesus, and then you get crucified. Let me just say one thing about that. He, 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 he ran for re-election. He ran for re-election. That was the moment to ask to do the hard things. He did not ask the American people. He had a chance. That was his chance when he ran for He won re-election, but that was his chance to ask to do the Tell me what you mean by ask the American public. Like what? You mean through, through what means? I'm, I'm, I'm literally Vote asking. for me, and you're voting for... Massive spending on infrastructure and entitlement reform and maybe throwing tax reform. But let's just say he, he did that. How would it get done? You asked for a mandate. You asked for a mandate. You vote for me and you're instructing Congress to I do say it. Two things. Yeah, he One. heard that song with the temptations and it didn't. First you know. of all, uh, <laughs> opposition to, yeah, look, the fact that there's racism and that explains some of the opposition to Barack Obama, no one's going to dispute that. But in the, the rule of intensity in American politics was not invented eight years ago small minorities that are truly intense in their political behavior have the ability to block large majorities. That's the reason we don't have more gun control than we have. That's the reason we don't have entitlement reform. That was not invented seven and a half years ago, but an issue after issue, small groups with real commitment and intensity have outsized political impact. I would say the one what thing- What do they share in common? And the one thing I would have said about Barack Obama is one of the rules of American politics, you want to do big things in American politics that last, you do it bipartisan. The, one, the biggest thing he did, arguably, was, was the Affordable Care Act. And it was done, though, without Republican support. A very different way to have done it would have been to work it much more with Republicans rather than franchising it out. <laughs> but not, if you want to have lasting big reforms from civil rights to other issues, there's got to be a bipartisan dimension. Otherwise, it will never put down roots. It will never be seen as legitimate. Uh, would it have been easy? Of course not. But would it have been possible? I would have said to have taken much more of a run at a bipartisan approach to affordable care and to, to health care reform only as a fallback. It would not have been my initial approach the way this administration went about it. But LBJ could do bipartisanship because he was a white Southern Texas guy who was seen as one of us. And so when he collared these people, 
and Dick Russell and so on, and he forced his agenda through, A, it was a different time and place in terms of American politics, but B, he was a different kind of guy. Imagine Barack Obama in 1965 as president. Of course, that's contradictory because the Voting Rights Act didn't exist. But <laughs> if we can imagine, my point is bipartisanship, the people who were on the opposite side of the aisle couldn't even concede the legitimacy of your, for a long time, Donald Trump leading your American citizenship, your legitimacy as a political figure, and then the refusal to work with you because of the cantankerous re resistance. I'm not saying that that kind of uh, partisan vigor was invented seven years ago, seven and a half years ago, but I'll tell you what was invented seven and a half years ago, a black presidency. I'll tell you what was invented for the first time America reached out to a figure to say because of your merit and your quality, not your race, although that was a tremendous bonus, and we bought into that because we saw that that was a tremendous barrier that had to be lowered. But let's not pretend that Barack Obama didn't inherit not only George Bush's uh, you know, political prescriptions and his uh, policy recommendations, he inherited a culture that for hundreds of years has been incapable of ceding the legitimacy, just like Hillary Clinton will challenge that gender barrier as well. And I just don't think we're acknowledging enough this ostensible fantasy, you know, fantasy uh, world where bipartisan partisanship exists without, I don't know, hating the guy, without feeling that he's not truly American, and without truly feeling that he's not really human. At that level, I just think it's extremely hard to forge bipartisan consensus in a culture that didn't. By the way, had they been willing to just give a little, look at what Obama could have done. Look at what our legacy contributions, look at what our legacy conversations would have been had they worked with him even a little bit. I, I just think it's extremely unfair to ask him to exist in that kind of situation. The legacy of Barack Obama, Evan Thomas, Richard Haas, Susan Page, Michael Eric Dyson, thank you so very much for this conversation. Susan Page is Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today. Evan Thomas wrote Being Nixon. Richard Haas is President of the Council on Foreign Relations, and Michael Eric Dyson is a sociology professor at Georgetown. He also wrote the book The Black Presidency. The conversation was moderated by Renee Montaigne, special correspondent for NPR. It was held in June at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of our public programs. Thanks for joining me.